All right. Thank you, Ben. And great to see you all this morning. And if you're listening online later, great to have you listening online later. Um, welcome to part five of five on the life of Moses here at uh, Grace Point Church. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. Um, did you know that there was a man in India named Samir Singh? In fact, I have a picture of this man in case you don't know what he looks like. Here he is. Samir, on April 29th of this year, decided that he was going to run 10,000 kilometers in 100 days. Now, we live in a non-metric system world in the United States of America, so we might wonder, what in the world is that? So here's the deal. Samir decided on April 29th, he left his house barefoot from Mumbai, India, where he lives, and decided, I'm going to run about 100 kilometers for 100 straight days. By the way, a marathon is about 41-ish kilometers. Okay, so he's running about two and a half marathons every day for 100 straight days. So he ran, this was just April 29th of this year, he ran um, through monsoon rain in India, he ran through blistering heat in Mumbai, ran through the streets of Mumbai, India. As he kept running, he began to develop a fan club. He actually ran in clothes that people gave to him because he didn't have the resources to, to, to do that on his own. And... Um, he ended up getting like a gastrointestinal disease. I can't imagine why you get sick when you do something like this. Okay, He ended up in the hospital in the middle of these 100 days. And somewhere along the line, his blisters got so bad on his bare feet that he was running on that he actually ended up wearing shoes. Amazing. It seems like a good idea to me to start with shoes. But anyway, I guess if you're going to run 100K, 100 days, you do it the way that you want to do it. So here's the deal for our friend. Now, you may wonder why would someone do this? Don't you wonder that? I have no idea why Samir would do this. He said, here's, here's why. He said, because I believe that we've essentially, this is my words now, but we put artificial limits on the human body and that we tend to think that we can only do so much. And I tend to believe, Samir says, this is my words, that your body can do what your dreams allow you to do. Doesn't that sound philosophical? That's kind of neat, but I don't know if it would still make me want to run 100K in 100 days. But so here's Samir, all right? So Samir, let's, let's frame this up. On August 6th, August 6th is the end of his 100 days. His goal was to run 10,000 kilometers. That's just a lot, all right? Now, here's what happened. On day 100, Samir has 150 kilometers to go. And he actually ran, by the end of his 100 days, he ran 9,900 and 64 kilometers. He came up 36 kilometers short. Now, let me ask you, was this a success or a failure? See, for Samir, here's a question. So if you're looking at this, you're like, hmm. For those of you in the room or those listening who are like, are you serious? Like you couldn't do 36 more? You just did 9,964? For those of you in the room who tend to think, man, he came up just like, really, Samir? You couldn't do a little bit more? Like, oh. And it may take you a couple days to see the success of 9,964 in light of the failure, quote-unquote, of 36 kilometers. For those in the room who, like me, instinctively think, Oh, you just fell short of your goal. You didn't reach it. And easily and quickly, immediately categorizes it as a, mm, quote-unquote, failure, even while recognizing all the good, but no, you 
didn't quite get there. For those of you in the room who are like that, this morning's message is for you. Because here's what I believe, that at the end of our lives, we're going to be a lot like Samir, and that is we're going to come to the end of life, and if we're not careful, we're going to look back and see all the places where we were 36 kilometers short of the amazing things that we thought we really wanted to do. And the reason I think that'll happen, because I don't think I've gotten to the end of my life yet, but the reason I think that this will happen for some of us is because we often get to the end of our days like this. Uh, track with me. I don't know if you thought about this this way, but if a lifetime is made up of days, how we spend our days determines how we will spend our lifetime, right? Like if a lifetime is made up of days, how I spend my days will determine the way that my lifetime goes. And I don't know about you, but the end of certain days, there are regular times when I feel like I came up just a wee bit short of what I wanted whether that's in productivity and getting things done. Sometimes that's in how I interact with you. You know, maybe I was short-tempered when I shouldn't have been, maybe in relating to my family or even in decisions that I make that I look back a few years on, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, if only a few years ago I would have done this differently. If only a little bit ago I would have done this differently. Like if you ever in that moment where you look back and you say, man... (laughs) If only I could have made a different decision when I was in my 20s or 30s. If only I would have forgiven more quickly instead of carried this grudge around forever. If only we would have made a different financial decision rather than buying the new thing. Now look what that's done to us financially. You know, if only I would have married him or only I would not have divorced her. Like if only I would have and only if I wouldn't have. If ever you're in a situation where you look back on your day or a season of life or at the end of your life and say, hmm, I think... If I'm honest, like I'm just 36K short. And the instinct can be to call the day, to call the season, to call our life. Mm, we just came a little bit short. And it, maybe, maybe even to call it a failure. Now, here's the thing in the life of Moses Moses, he didn't run 100K in 100 days. But what Moses did do is he had an incredible task in front of him, not unlike this 10,000 kilometer thing. His task was to get a couple million people out of the nation of Egypt and set them free and then bring them into a new land. If you've been tracking with us in the story of Moses for a couple weeks now, you know this, that he came up just a little short of that final goal. That in a moment of anger, Moses When the people, after like 40-some years, year after year after year, continued to complain and argue with him, in a moment of anger, he took his uh, staff and he hit a rock to bring forth water. Rather than speaking to the rock as God had instructed him to do and honoring God in that moment, Moses drew attention to himself and in front of the nation of Israel said, do I have to do this thing for you? And he hit the rock and drew the attention to himself as if, he was, as if he was the one who provided for the nation. And God said, because you have done that, you are going to come up 36K short of your goal. Like You are not going to lead the people into the promised land. Think about that with me just for a minute. Think of all that Moses has done. He has confronted Pharaoh, the, the lead uh, man in the most powerful nation in the world at the time. He has led the people who were resistant to him through Egypt and out into the desert. He's navigated a whole generation of people who have been disobedient. He has produced uh, generational leadership and faithfulness for all these people. He has run for 100 days, almost 100K a day. He has been faithful 
And yet God says to Moses, you're not going to cross that finish line. The very reason that you brought these people out of the nation of Egypt, I will not let you cross that line. And so the question becomes, how will Moses' life be measured at the end of it? What will his legacy be? How will he be remembered? What will stand out the most? What he wasn't able to do or what he did do? And what will God, in particular, say about him? And what, at the end of the day, will God say about you and say about me? And this is why I love looking at the end of lives of, of people who live faithful lives, because we get to learn so much about how to kind of reverse engineer our own life and make some decisions this way. So the life of Moses today is about the final epitaph that God writes on his life and how God sees Moses as he comes up in our opinion, our estimation, maybe just 36 kilometers short. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the fifth book in the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34 is where we are going to be this morning, the last chapter in that longer book of Deuteronomy. Moses' life has carried us from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers and then into Deuteronomy, and we're about to see a transition happen here with a new leader coming in to the nation of Israel. All right, I'm going to be reading from the 1984 New International Version, um, Deuteronomy 34. So, then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho, where there the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. This is about the third time, at least, that we know of, that God is reminding Moses of his failure. What's happening is God brings Moses up and he walks him up to the observatory. I mean, it's almost like you might be driving around in a, a mountainous region, you see a pull out, a look out, and you can pull, pull out and look out and see the vast vista unfold before you, wherever you are. You know, if you're seeing some of these mountainous views, you've seen that. You know what that looks like. And so Moses, in a way, is at the top of the mountain. He's kind of pulled off into one of these scenic overlooks, and God is speaking to him. He said, Moses, look at it all. You're not going in. But I want you to see it. But I, do, I want you to remember, as you're about to die, this is what you're not going in for. And so what should Moses think? Like, how should he feel in this moment? Should he be like, I'm so grateful that the people after me get to experience this land? Or is he going to be like, another reminder, I fell 36K short. I blew it. I failed morally. I'm defined by my failure. Like, what is it for Moses and what's that going to be? So, we continue to read. In verse 5, we read about how God begins to see Moses. And so, and Moses, verse 5, the servant of the Lord died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. 
He buried him. Sounds like God buried him in Moab. Now, I don't understand what happens here, but we do have tradition that tells us that we don't really know where Moses was buried, that indeed it was a almost like a, a search for the Loch Ness Monster kind of thing. That, that may not be the best imagery, but this, this constant search for the grave of Moses. And, and uh, the idea was that God allowed him to be buried or die in the mountainous region where no one could go and like build a, a temple or a tower or whatever to, to commemorate Moses because it was really about God and not Moses. So it's, it's strange that we don't actually know, and traditionally we don't know, where Moses is burial plot actually was. So verse 6, he buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Verse 7, Moses, and this is a very interesting verse, Moses was 120 years old when he died, and yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Why did he die? And this is a very interesting question. A man who was faithful to God whose eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone, dies. Why? All that we can assume is that God was, was done. I mean, like the purpose for Moses here has come to be the end. Like there's, there's no more purpose here that God has for Moses and it's time to kind of let him come to peace and, and fall asleep, so to speak, in, the, in the, the world here in Moab. It's an interesting thought that for those of you who have lost family members, loved ones, who seem to be still strong, and like, why did God take them so early? And I don't have answers to all those questions. I don't pretend to have answers to those difficult ones, but I just want you to know there is model and history for that, even in the life of Moses, who appears to be strong until his very last day, where God just says, Moses, thank you for what you've done. Like, you've been faithful, you've been a servant to me, and now I'm going to allow you to, to die here. That's the end of that story for Moses. And so he comes to his end in our world here in verse 7. So verse 8, here's the impact of Moses. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. And so we see, now, we see that the nation has this reaction to Moses, that they feel the loss of his leadership. And we also notice in the next verse, verse 9, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And so, this is very important, the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. In other words, Moses' influence extended beyond his lifetime. If Moses did not have genuine influence with these people, had Moses told Joshua and the people to go this direction, After Moses died, they would have had no reason to go that direction unless they continued to believe in the influence of Moses. So Moses dies, a very influential man, one who is listed as a servant of the Lord in verse 5, and one whom the nation of Israel uh, grieves for and mourns. So a, a good ending, a fitting ending to the life of Moses. But there's one thing, there's one thing that is said about Moses that actually makes me stop in my tracks. Because I don't know that it's said about anybody else in the Bible. And it's the kind of thing when I stop and think about this, it is a game changer for me in how I see my world. Because if you, in my story of Samir Singh, if you have reacted in any way to think, oh, 
Seriously, guy, like you couldn't go 36 more kilometers after you did 9,964? Like, if you have anything in you that is performance-based, that is driven that way to want to hit goals and nail it and not make mistakes and not look back with regret and always be kind of on, if you have anything in you like that, then the next thing that's said about Moses to me is the game changer. Now, before you look at that, here's what I want to, how I want to frame this up. You may have heard this phrase before, um, that it's all about who you, what? No. I heard some of you say it. It's all about who you know, right? And what does that mean? It means if you want to apply to a college, that it's really more about who you know than your GPA, right? If you want to get the job, yes, you can have a resume that's built, but if you don't know somebody, then the person who knows that person will likely get in more than you, right? Like that, that's kind of the way it is. If you're trying out for a team and there's two people who are competing for one last spot on the team and the one person knows the coach really well because they always go on vacation with them and the other one doesn't go on vacation with the coach, so like who do you think is going to have that last spot on the team? It's all about who you no, we've said that before. In fact, we also talk, we talk to people in our community about the, the need to build what we call social capital, to, to connect with people so that when we come into points of need in our lives in different ways and phases that we can help one another out. We use that phrase all the time. It's all about who you know. But I want to tell you there's something better than that. Let me lay it out this way. I recently had a conversation with a young lady applying for college, and she's applying to a school in, in Pennsylvania, and her, her, one of her friends... Her friend's grandfather is a major benefactor. Uh, is that the right word, benefactor? Gives a bunch of money in that school. Is that the right word? Major benefactor of that school. Okay? And so the, the grandfather has the authority via the school to give a certain number of scholarships to incoming freshmen to entice them to come to school XYZ. So let me ask you. Do you think that the person I was talking to, because her best friend has a grandfather who's a major benefactor of that college, do you think she has a shot to get one of those scholarships? It's all about who you know. Of course she has a shot to get one of those scholarships, absolutely, because her best friend will put in a good word with grandpa who will then likely say, hey, if you think so, honey, no problemo, I'll write it out, boom, there we go. It's a good thing. But I want to tell you, there's something better than who you know. What if this young lady I was talking to, what if it was her grandfather who was the major benefactor, not her friend's grandfather? What if it was her grandfather who was a major benefactor of this college and could give a bunch of money and all that? Do you think she would get the scholarship? Absolutely. But what else would she get? She would get something more because her grandfather is the benefactor in this case. Because the grandfather has a relationship with her, she would get something even more. She would get a scholarship, but she would also get a grandfather who cared about how she did in school. Who, when she was struggling with classes, when she was trying to figure out what to do, when they were together at vacation time and you know, uh, Christmas and, and uh, Thanksgiving, he would talk with her and ask her, how's it going? How can I continue to help you? How can I make this place great for you? Because I want you to have a great experience. Will he do that with all the people to give scholarships to? No. Would he do that with his granddaughter? Yes. So here's what I want to say. Better than, better than who you know is who knows you. Better than who you know is who knows you. Because the benefactor in this case knows the granddaughter in my scenario, that is a much better situation. Do you think that he'd be willing to put in a good word when you need to get an internship and there's only one spot left? Yeah. 
because he knows you. This is a fine nuance, but it is a game changer for the life of Moses. Now look at verse 10 of Deuteronomy 34. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. Verse 10's epitaph or description of Moses is a game changer for me. Moses is a prophet of God, certainly knew God, but that is not his legacy. He was a prophet of God who knew God intimately, but the the epitaph isn't, and Moses knew God. Look at it. It's God knew Moses face to face. The Lord knew him face to face. This is amazing to me because the foundation of the two is vastly different. If it's about me knowing God, then the onus of responsibility is on me. In other words, if I want my legs to be man, this is a, a man who knew God. All I have to do is study, man. I just research. I'll read. I'll pray. You know, I will do it. But the weight of responsibility is on me that I knew him. You can get to know anyone that way. Anyone. You can study up on them. You can, you can do that. But the onus of responsibility is on you. And, by the way, you better perform. Don't come up 36K short. Continue for the rest of your spiritual life to perform, 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 because God wants that from you, right? That you would know him. But the way this is described puts the onus completely on God in this case. See, Moses is described as someone whom God knew. I know him. I know him. That this puts the weight of responsibility on God, not on Moses. And that, to me, is a game changer for people who are performance-driven and who think that missing out on the promised land is missing out on their purpose in life. Or running 99-64 is missing out on the goal. So I look at the life of Moses and I have to ask this question. If God knew Moses, if God knew Moses, and I don't know anyone else who's described this way, that God, the Lord, knew Moses face to face, I think, what can I learn? <laughs> what can I learn from God knowing Moses? Now, how do you learn anything from that? That seems like a passive role. That I just Do I stand there and hope God knows me? <laughs> well, here's what that tells me. Number one, that, that God, as a creator God, wants to know his creation. And so again, if you're performance-based at all and think that God is somehow pleased with you, the more you do, the more you know, I just want to remind you again, God has made you and doesn't react to you by the basis of what you do for him. Your church attendance, your, your prayer time, your time in the scriptures, how much you do this or do that. Like there is a almost, almost, like a benevolent grandfather relationship. That doesn't describe God in his entirety, but almost like the, the, the benefactor in the college where the grandfather says to the granddaughter, like, I, I love you, you're mine. I'm leaning into you. I want to know you. I'm going to text you and email you and call you. Like I'm going to lean into this relationship because you matter to me. And the granddaughter might never respond to him, but do you think granddad still cares about the granddaughter? Absolutely. Do you think granddaughter can gain more favor from grandpa by doing more? Not if he's good, like he understands the relationship. And so this is a game changer for performance-based people who are always who, who can think and get tripped up on, man, I need to know, I need to do, I need to serve, I need to act, I need to lead, I need to... What if it's about God knowing me and not the other way around. 
And so here's what I ask, though, this question. Is there anything that I can do with this information? So God knew Moses, and so what? Like, is there anything actionable I can do? Do I just wait for God to know me? What does that even look like? So I look at the life of Moses, and if you've tracked with us for a little bit on this series, you know that what Moses did on a regular basis is Moses had these regular meetings with God that we talked about last time, the, the tent of meeting. He would go to the tent of meeting and talk with God regularly. And Moses' life is really more about faithful obedience, continuing to do one thing after the other after the other over and over and over and over and over again. So I summarize it this way. Here's what I see in the life of Moses. And you can see whatever you'd like. You can interact with this if you'd like. But here's what I see, that Moses had regular, honest interactions with God which resulted in action. That Moses, and here's the takeaway for me, that Moses had regular, honest interactions with God which resulted in action. Moses' life was marked by regular connections, meetings with God, in which Moses just flat out said, like, God, no, I, I don't want to. Like, kill me first. I don't want to do what you want me to do. And then God would be like, thank you for sharing, Moses. Now I need you to go out and lead. To which Moses would be like, okay. It's just really funny. Like, he would do that over and over and over again. We would see this interaction with Moses. We say here at GPC that at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge and what he says goes. And then we say that the Bible reveals God's clearest will or intent for our decision-making for our lives. That Moses put himself under the authority of God even when he didn't want to do it. Like when he went to Pharaoh the first time and said, Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, no, in fact, I'm going to make slavery harder for the people in in Israel. I'm going to amp it up. I'm going to allow people to be beaten. And Moses went back and said, God, I don't want to do that. And God said, sorry, Moses, now get, get yourself back in there and do it again. And Moses is like, okay. It's just strange. It's just constant in Moses' life. I'm willing to do the things I don't want to do because I'm under your authority. But I'm also going to tell you, God, that I don't want to do these things. Like, I'm going to be straight with you on that, but I'm going to be straight and respectful, but I'm going to keep coming back to you. I'm going to put myself under that authority over and over and over and over and over again. And when you do that, I think you know this, when you have a relationship like that with somebody, which you know they're just straight with you and care about you and respect you, you know that is a relationship you don't want to change for anything. And this is why I believe God says, that man, I I knew him. Not just that he knew me, I knew him because of what he did. He kept coming to me. He kept being straight with me. And then he kept doing the things that I told him he needed to do. And for Moses, it kept resulting in action over and over and over and over and over again. That is the hard part. To forgive when you don't want to forgive. To love when you don't want to love. To choose to move on when you really kind of don't want to. These are the things that Moses did over and over and over again. Now, Moses' life finishes with, at two levels. One level we're covering here, and that is, what can I learn from the end of Moses' life? And I would love for it to be said at the end of my life that, man, God, God knew me. Not, not just that I knew God, but that God knew me. But Moses' life also reveals another level in the Scriptures. 
See, the, the story of Moses ends in the last verse of chapter 34 in Deuteronomy in verse 12. And you can look at it with me and you'll see the hope that is laid out here in this, in this book. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It's a final verse in that chapter. But what it tells us is that there is a, 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 a vacuum of leadership that Moses left. Like when he died, there was no one else who stepped into that role. There was something about Moses that hasn't been filled since the time of Moses. Now, if you're in the nation of Israel, you are looking for a leader like Moses. Yes, you have Joshua, the one who comes in next, you have him, but you're still looking for a Moses. And there is a a longing for the people of Israel that comes after Moses dies. There's a longing for a leader like Moses who knows God and is known by him, who leads the people with faithful consideration over and over and over again. And there becomes, in the nation of Israel, in their national conscience, this expectation, this hope that someone, that someone can lead us like Moses did. And this is why, hundreds and hundreds of years later, in a small little town called Bethlehem, when a baby is born who changes the world because he died on a cross, and came back to life. That when Jesus came, and in that time, in 34 AD time period, that kind of range, when people were looking at him, and they had Jewish background, and they grew up as Jews, who had in their history a leader like Moses, whose leadership was never yet quite parallel. That is why the author of the book of Hebrews writes what he writes here in Hebrews chapter 3. He writes to people who are trying to figure Jesus out. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast." That Jesus is the new Moses. That Moses delivered the nation of Israel from their bondage. And his leadership is a great metaphor for Jesus, who delivered not just the Israelites, but delivered all people from their bondage to sin. That Jesus' leadership, he's the greater Moses. He's the one who has come to save all people from the bondage of sin all people from a hopeless future. This is what Jesus has come to provide. And this is why in the author the of author Hebrews draws into this Old Testament background and hope of collective humanity. There has to be someone greater. And here is Jesus. And that's why we sit here at GPC, at Grace Point Church, and say, we want everyone to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Like that's, our, that's our interest for you. Because we believe that he's the deliverer, he's the savior, he's the Messiah, he's the long-anticipated one. The one who 
delivers us from all of the 36-kilometer short things that happen in our lives. All of the mistakes you made when you were in college and in high school. All the things you wish you could have back. All the ways that you've not quite kept your own standards, wished you would have. All the things you live with some regret over that can mark you as having fallen just short. The Bible calls a lot of that stuff sin. And Jesus has come to free us from the bondage of that sin and deliver us to a relationship with God and life everlasting. And so we celebrate that. Like that's, that's the heartbeat of the church. The church universal and our church here to say Jesus has come as the greater Moses to deliver us from our bondage to sin. And so if you sit here this morning, you're like, I, I've never quite seen it that way. Like I, I didn't no, this is what Jesus did. And I don't know how to step into a relationship with him, but I kind of would like that. Like, I want to be freed from the bondage of the things that I fall just short on. Let's have the conversation. Anyone here in a few moments who's going to share communion with you is ready for that conversation to talk with you. I'm certainly ready, and the the friends who you're around would certainly be ready to talk with you as well. But we want to encourage you, man. If you're at a spot here this morning where you say, I, I'd, I'd like to know this Jesus, man. Let's, let's make that conversation happen, all right? Like, let's step into that because Jesus provides the kind of hope and deliverance that cannot be found anywhere else. And that's what we land on and that's what we hope for you for as well, okay? Now, this morning we have a chance to share in communion. And what we do with that, explain that to you here, communion for us is a time to regather as a church around the cross and what Jesus did on the cross, where he died uh, and came back to life. And before he went to the cross, he shared um, a last meal or a last supper with the, the disciples in, uh, in, a, in a room in Jerusalem. And he had them up in this room and he, he broke bread and he uh, you know, distributed the cup for them. And he said to them, this is essentially a token of, or this is what's going to happen to my body. And some of them were like, I don't really know what you're talking about, Jesus, but he knew what was happening. He essentially said, like, I want you as a church, I want you as believers to do this regularly, remembering this night, remembering this moment, remembering the cross, and how Jesus' body was torn apart for us, and his blood was shed. And so when we share in communion, which we do about every other month here at GPC, we come together as believers in Jesus Christ to share in communion. You don't need to be a member of the church to do that, but if you do believe that Jesus died for your sins and is your Savior, Join with us in participating in communion, in taking together the bread and the cup, which symbolize Jesus' body and, and blood, um, broken and his blood shed for us. So I'm going to invite the uh, communion ushers to come on up and the worship team as well as we begin to prepare to, uh, to take communion so you all can come on up and, uh, and get in your spots. And as they come up, uh, I want you to know how we're going to do this. In a moment, I'm going to ask Pastor Kevin to pray for... The, uh, the bread as we distribute the bread, and then we will hold the bread until everybody has been served, and then we will uh, eat together, and then we're going to do the same for the cup, where we're going to pass the cup and hold it until everyone is served together. So in preparation for, uh, for taking the bread, um, Kevin, will you pray for us? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment to come together as a church. 
And to have this picture, to have this image of the gospel, to have this tangible representation of the story of redemption that was made manifest in your body, your broken body, for us so that we could have life. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for knowing us and inviting us in to your story so that we could share in your sufferings but also share in your glorification. Lord, this meal, as we come together as a family to share the bread and to share the wine, this meal is a reminder to us, that invitation to us, that practice, that ritual even, that's shaping our hearts. I pray that you would shape our hearts. I pray that you would allow our hearts to be open, that you would do the work that only you can do right now. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice that opens up the door for relationship with you. We pray that we could live that out in real concrete and practical terms, just as the bread and the wine is real and practical. Lord, we love you and we thank you and pray that our lives would be a representation of the sacrifice and the love that you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.
What we hold in our hands is a symbol, a symbol of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And he said, as often as you eat this, you remember my death and resurrection. Let us eat together. I'm going to pray for the cup. Father, at this time when we remember the sacrifices that you made on our behalf, we ask, Lord, we would never take that for granted. And so today we come before you recognizing that you died a perfect life for us. To take away all of those things, those shortcomings, those short 36 kilometers. And so we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in gratitude for your goodness to each of us.